Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Thank you so much, Grace, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast and to speak about the article that you wrote back in April of this year about Ontario's long-term care should be an election issue. And before we start with the podcast, if I can just get you to speak a little bit about yourself uh, so you can tell the audience about yourself. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm a retired academic librarian. Um, I've been involved in long-term care since 2008 when my mother entered a uh, nonprofit home, long-term care home here in Ottawa. And after, even after her death in 2014, I continued to volunteer in the home on a weekly basis up until the pandemic. Um, I chaired the home's first family council and I continue to advocate for improvements in resident care through my involvement in the Champlain Region Family Council Network. Um, the network is a volunteer group here in Ottawa that helps support family councils in the 60 long-term care homes um, in our the Champlain region. And we do that through information sharing, education, and advocacy. Um, I've chaired the network's advocacy committee for the past 10 years, and I currently co-chair the network. I was also I was also invited to be a member of the advisory group on the Ministry of Long-Term Care uh, Staffing Study, which was released in 2020. And I sit on several long-term care uh, regional committees as a voice for families of residents. And I thought I would just mention that one of the committees on which I sit is the committee, uh, Community of Practice for Transformation and Long-Term Care, which brings together um, homes in our region that are implementing transformative models of care and other healthcare representatives to share best practices and promote culture change. So that's who I am. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. And then, so we'll start. So with the federal government's announcement uh, back on April of 2022 of the Safe Long-Term Care Fund and the agreement with the province of Ontario for $379 million that would be transferred to them. And in addition, right now they're creating the long-term care standards. Um, Do you think these initiatives are the right starting point um, to your article and the correct way to start the reimagining of long-term care? Um, Well, I think we definitely need more money for long-term care in the province. So I think that uh, we were happy to see this infusion of funds. But on the other hand, we were disappointed that this money has not been tied to national standards, which are still in the development phase. So um, I think that that's, I'm glad to see the money, but um, it would be nice to know how the money is going to be spent. So I did go back to the announcement um, and it said that it can be used for retention measures for existing staff, including wage top-ups, new infrastructure renovations, uh, infrastructure and renovations such as air conditioning, um, assessment, readiness assessments. Um, But I haven't seen any provincial announcements as to how the money is going to be used in Ontario but we certainly need to address wage top-ups, retention and hiring more frontline staff. Um, And longer term, I think we need to see, we can't be dependent on one-time funding from the federal government, it has to be ongoing, but it also has to be linked to um, standards to ensure accountability. So one of the questions I had is, could we use that money to accelerate the implementation of four hours of care? Um, The government has announced they're committed to a four hours of direct care per resident per day, 
but not until 24, 25. So that's still a long way away. If you talk to any family member of a resident and they will say that care is needed now. So, and even that four hours of care might be a bit low. So, um, so we're glad to see the money, but uh, we wanna make sure there's continuing money and we wanna see it tied to national standards. Absolutely, thank you. And then in your article, you, you there was four main points that you indicated that the province should focus on. And it was one, the adopt a person-centered care model, two, develop and implement human resources plan, three, revise current LTC building standards, and for institute long-term care standards that reward quality and innovation. Why do you and your group believe this should be the main focus that the government should be focusing on for the reimagining long-term care? Well, we are seeing a commitment from the government to the four hours of care, as I just mentioned. We're also um, seeing a lot of new beds being promised, uh, new long-term care homes, which will address the, the issue of long wait lists. But it's time to really look at the care that, how the care is delivered for the residents. So we need to begin with reimagining the model of care. Right now, there's a very medical institutional model. Um, Long-term care residents are called homes, but there's very little home, uh, very little that is home-like about them. So we need to move to something that's called person or resident-centered care. Um, and it's the resident who directs their care. So, and you'll also hear the terms relation-based models of care, emotion-focused models of care. So many of these new models of care, they have higher levels of staff engagement, fewer sick days, um, and more staff continuity. So I think it's a win-win. It's a win for the residents and it's a win for the staff. So I'd really like to see it um, across the board. We're only seeing a few homes bringing this model in. And some of the models that uh, you might have heard of, your listeners might have heard of, are the Butterfly Model, the Eden Alternative, Greenhouse Project. Those are some of the ones that um, are, are, are person-centered care models. Perfect. No, that would be totally great to, in, in terms at least to value the resident and value the family members in terms of what their life should look like living in those facilities. So the other point, oh, we want to the home, sorry, their homes. <laughs> their homes, but I always refer to them as well, I, know, I, know, I understand. Yeah. So in the other part is the human resources plan, because right now, especially in the province of Ontario, we have Bill 124, which oh. has greatly impacted the ability for nurses to stay in the profession. And so do you think that this government, now that they have been reelected, should be able to be in a position to repeal this particular bill? Well, I certainly would like to see it repealed because it doesn't affect just uh, nurses, it affects PSWs as well. I mean, we went into this pandemic with serious staffing shortages and Bill 124 has only exacerbated the situation. So it limits wage increases for PSWs, nurses and other health professionals in nonprofit long-term care and hospitals to a maximum of 1% per year for six years. So we know inflation is over 6%. So it's gonna be very hard for the nonprofit sector to attract and retain staff. I also thought it was kind of interesting is that the male dominated professions like fire and police departments and paramedics were exempted under Bill 124. So 
the staffing issue in long-term care is at a crisis point and you can't, it's gonna be impossible to rebuild staff unless that bill is appealed, is repealed. So um, I, I think the government has a moral obligation to, to look at that bill again and, 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 and cancel it or whatever, repeal it, so. No, I definitely agree with you there. And as well, I know that you had indicated as well that there should be additional training for both registered and non-registered staff. Well, I think training is um, uh, essential. Um, training and mentoring are important if you want to see culture change. Um, so even just the way in which the language of long-term care, for instance, the Center for Learning, Research and Innovation um, are continually developing training, training modules for long-term care staff. And one of the modules deals with language and suggests word swaps so that the language of long-term care is more respectful. So I think training is um, critical and I think it's always ongoing. We also, the new legislation talks about holistic palliative care. So there's going to be um, more training needed um, on improved palliative care and long-term care. So I think it's always ongoing. Um, I also think that it's important that homes be compensated so that they can backfill when staff are off on training. Um, so that's uh, an important component as well. Definitely, because that's definitely needed because it does show value in terms of the employees that do work there to say that your resources, your time is valued in terms of in terms of increasing your knowledge to care for the residents that do live there. So that is a huge one. And your third point in terms of revising the current long-term care building standards. That and is, go ahead. Could, go, no, because you're just saying that it should be a smaller home-like settings. What would be the advantage of this for the residents? Um, well, the advantage is, first of all, I mean, if you think, look at a lot of the new homes that have been announced, they're three, 400 bed models. Um, they're like large institutions. They're like, they look like hospitals. I've seen the design for some of them. And it's what we want is, is a place that looks and feels like a home. It is the resident's last home in many cases. Um, you know, but you walk into many of these long-term care homes, beige walls, long corridors, metal, medical equipment and carts cluttering the hallways. And right now, the current model allows for 32 uh, residents per, per home unit, um, which is, means it's organized uh, that way because of staffing rather than resident emotional well-being. So we'd like to see groupings of 6 to 10 or even 12 residents around a living dining area. So the idea would be, you know, it does, it's not very far for the resident to, to go to sort of, you know, experience social interaction with the other residents. Their kitchen would be on site. So the residents would be able to smell the food as it was being prepared. It would stimulate their appetite. Um, so, and the other thing that's really important in these smaller home-like environments is, is it's also tied to continuity of care so that the staff know the resident and build a relationship. And what they found that during the pandemic, the few homes of this type, because there aren't very many in Canada, unfortunately, they fared much better and had lower infection rates and death. Um, also, we'd like to see easier access to the outside where there can be access to gardens to stimulate residents' senses. Um, 
And I think that's incredibly important is, you know, they need to be outside to have the sun on their face, to smell, you know, the flowers, just to stimulate their environment. So the other thing we, yeah. <laughs> we'd like to see is, you know, long-term care is um, co-located with daycares or community centers. Um, so residents could interact with others and continue to feel part of their community. Um, I don't know whether some of the listeners might have heard of a home in Saskatchewan called Sherbrooke Community Care, which is an Eden alternative care. So they have a, both a daycare and a grade six classroom, which I think is just amazing. Yeah, because I've only known of some municipal homes that do have a daycare on site with at the, some of the long-term care facilities, and they do try to interact as best as they can, and it does make a difference for them to see other human beings. Than oh, I mean, when you see a scene, when a senior sees a little, you know, child, toddler, their face just lights up. I mean, it's, you can just see the, the benefit of it. And I love the idea of a grade six classroom. Um, the students have to apply to attend the class, this particular classroom. But again, it sort of, you know, instills respect for elders and, uh, uh, you know, just again, is an opportunity for the seniors in the home to feel part of the community. Yeah, no, that's a big one because they tend to be isolated. They're just off into this. As you said, they built these big facilities and they're just off there and nobody else goes in other than family or friends to be able to see to see them. So, yeah. And I just I mean, so many of the new homes that I've seen announced for our area are, you know, they're being built on strip malls on major thoroughfares where land is cheap. And in some cases, it might not even be easy for staff to get to these these yeah. uh, locations. Definitely. That's uh, I mean, definitely a major concern. So, and then your last point in terms of the implementation of long-term care standards that reward quality and innovation. Currently, the feds are working on a standard by the HSO that would like to indicate something to be in conjunction with what is being worked on. Now, is from what we've seen so far, do you think that that is enough in terms of what is what that they're working on right now in terms of the standards for um, federally for the provinces? They've put a lot, I have to say, I, I have to commend the, HS, the HSO um, team for the amount of work and consultation that they've done, but these are accreditation standards. So it's all voluntary. So whether or not they're gonna be enforceable is, is a big question mark. And I've even heard Dr. Sinha say that. Um, I somehow, I'd like to see federal funding um, track to sort of um, link to enforceable standards that if you don't measure up, you know, you don't get the funding. Um, one thing that they do, and there's a lot of measurement in long-term care, a lot of measurement and documentation, but we often don't see the accountability and the enforcement and somehow that has to be built into the development of standards. And it's right now, I'm not seeing that part of it. Um, so I'm a little bit concerned. Um, yeah. No, definitely. Because how are these standards are going to be tracked and monitored for a non-compliant facility? That's, that is going to be the big question. Now, in the new long-term legislation, um, the provincial government has um, expanded the penalties for long-term care. Um, 
But again, they never ever Im implemented financial penalties in the past. So doubling it makes no difference. Um, and the other thing that is kind of missing in all this discussion is we'd like to see more coaching for compliance, more sharing of best practices, um, helping homes get better rather than taking a purely punitive model. So it's kind of trying to balance out um, making sure that people um, comply, but working with them to help them um, have that compliance. Definitely, because that's another form of the valuing of everybody's experience to be able to transfer that to another uh, facility. Right. And the other thing is that, you know, I don't know if you can be able to provide an example. I know um, in terms of if a facility is not compliant, how would those um, penalties be applied that would not impact resident care? Well, I think yeah, the thing is that um, there's four envelopes. Funding for long-term care is based on four envelopes. Yes. So the, pers the personal and nursing care envelope cannot be touched. So if a home was fined, it wouldn't come out of the, the, that care envelope. So care would not be impacted. But it would mean for for-profit homes that if they were issued a financial penalty, um, you know, it would hurt their profits. So, um, and I think if we started to see fines levied, then I think that homes would start to try harder to um, ensure the compliance. So I think, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I worry about taking money out of a system that's already cash strapped. But if some homes, and I mean, there are so many great homes, but there are some that are repeatedly non-compliant and, you know, aren't changing. But if they started to see that there were going to be monetary consequences, then maybe they would start to work harder to create a better environment for their, their residents. Definitely. I agree with you there. And, you know, with the population increasing and, uh, of course, admissions going into uh, long-term care are increasing as well. How do we as a society be able to put political pressure to ensure these changes are implemented? <laughs> Wendy, I actually wish I knew. <laughs> I mean, there's been so much written about building, uh, making long-term care better over the last two years. Um, and we still have a long way to go. Um, but I think everybody has to communicate with um, their local politicians that we want a better long-term care system, the status quo isn't going to be enough. So they have to, I think that the, what we need to communicate is that long-term care is not just about new homes and more beds. It's about fundamentally transforming the model of care. It's about being respectful of the residents and their needs and preferences. And it's about building supportive relationships between the residents, their families, and the staff. And we have to really address this whole issue of improving salaries and working conditions so that we can attract and retain the best possible people in the sector. It doesn't matter if you work in a shiny, bright new home. If you know, you're not being properly compensated and appreciated, you're not going to stay. And that's a huge, huge issue. So... I also wanted to mention that in the new Long-Term Care Act, there's a new section called Section 44 that says the minister may establish a long-term quality center to promote innovation in the sector. And it's a may establish. Um, and so we'd really like that 
section enacted. We'd like to see a quality center that promotes innovation and sharing of best practices related to person-centered models of care. So that's, uh, we just, we have to make long-term care better. I mean, there's just absolutely no question. So basically we just have to keep discussing. We still have to keep talking. We have to talk with our politicians. And we've got the, I mean, there's all kinds of roadmaps. I mean, the Long-Term Care Commission was an excellent report. I think there were 85 recommendations in the report. I mean, it's all laid out for them and there's been other reports. So it's there. There just has to be the will to implement and change it. Definitely. And um, as we now close out this discussion, what would you, what would be your, I guess, your final thoughts or your call to actions that, um, you know, to, to let our listeners know? Well, I think that it's, it's important to learn about these transformative models of care um, so that you can understand how much better long-term care can be. There's a very good website called changelongtermcarenow.ca, which is managed by the Ottawa chapter of CARP, um, formerly the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. And they provide a lot of really good information about the various person-centered emotion-focused models of care. And they've got some really good video presentations on each of the emotion-focused models. Um, the website even gives a list of actions that individuals can take, such as writing to your MPPs and sending letters to the editors. So I think that's a good way to sort of get informed about how long-term care could be so much better. Also, Dr. Pat Armstrong um, and her team did a report for the City of Toronto in 2019 that describes the pros and cons of the various um, person-centered care models. Um, so that's something that can easily be looked at. So, and if you have a, if you're a family member uh, of a resident in long-term care, I think you should be asking your home administrator when they will be implementing person-centered care. I think we have to keep pushing, um, but I think it's, you have to sort of understand how, um, understand about these models and how they can make it so much better for the residents. So, and then just communicate with the politicians. And I also think I wanted to also, I think we have to galvanize all our friends um, to be advocates for better long-term care. Because everyone has to realize, everybody says, I'm not going to long-term care over my dead body, you know, but you just don't know your future. So I think everyone has a responsibility to um, ask for a better long-term care system for the residents that live there now and for future residents. So um, yeah, we all have to, to lend our voices to this, this uh, action. I agree with you 100%. So I'll definitely mention those in the show notes so people can link to those particular items that you've mentioned, as well as to the model that's in Saskatchewan. So people can be able to read up on that and to be informed about that as well. So thank you so much. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I just There's also a new home being built in Comax, um, BC, I did want to mention, Providence Health um, and it looks amazing. I'm ready to move to BC so I can get into that home when my when I need long term care. <laughs> so it's worth. And I think that's also. Uh, I think there might be a presentation on that on the CARP Change okay. Long Term Care Now uh, .ca site. So it's really it's um, really quite amazing. So 
Perfect. I'll put that in the show notes so people can be able to get to that as well. So, but thank you so much, Grace, because this conversation definitely needs to be talked about and people are listening in to, to know what, what can be done. What can I be able to do? So I do appreciate your time for coming on and speaking about this. And I appreciate you asking me to talk about transformation because it's so important. And thank thank you for the work you do to keep long-term care issues uh, out there. Thank you so much.